0: This time, would you stand and welcome our speaker, Pastor Rexilius? All right, sit down. Morning. Izzy, Pastor Rexilius makes me feel like my dad. So, thanks for making me feel old. And you also prayed for sermon, which means there's no end time. So thank you for that. I can go as long as I want. There we go. All right. Turn your Bibles to First Samuel 13. First Samuel 13. We gotta get right into it because we got chapter 13, 14, and 15. And here's what. I want to do as you're turning there, take a deep breath. No takers, this is going to bother you, but I don't want you to take notes for the first three-fourths until I tell you at the very end. What I want you to do is I want you to immerse yourself in the story here. There's a lot going on. don't want you to be distracted, because I might read too fast, or something along those lines, I will tell you at the end, we'll have five or six different things to write down regarding disobedience, kind of the anatomy of disobedience, and so that will be a time to take notes. And then for you teachers, this is what undeserved, unmerited favor and grace looks like. You guys will get 100, okay? All right. That's amazing grace, guys. Come on. Thank you. Even from the principal, you get an amen. You hear that, teachers? All right. Let's pray. God, we uh, come before you now in the posture of humility. We can't come with our presupposition or preconceived ideas on your Word or what we think we want it to sound like or what we want it to sound like or how it fits into our lives. But, God, it's written here, your very breath of what we need to see and hear this morning. God, may we hear everything that's going on in this story that we need to hear. By the power of your Spirit, may you illuminate those things off the text, into our minds, and down into our hearts. And most importantly, may we walk out of this gym this morning holding you up high, looking at the majesty and wonder of who you are. May we know something more about you that draws our heart closer to you this morning. That only you can do that work. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm not a big stats guy, but in the sports world, they have this saying called stats don't lie. And oftentimes what stats do is they reveal something, typically things we can't see or don't know about on the go. Well, Gallup does surveys, and that was the first job I ever had, was sitting in a little cubicle making phone calls, calling people hoping one out of the first 100 would answer at least one question. But here's a poll that they had a while back. They, random, they surveyed random people and asked multiple different questions. The first one was, do you believe in God? 94% of people said yes, yes. Well, they asked several other questions after that to reveal the fact that most of them, almost a similar stat on the other end, did not fear Him. Here's some things they said. I believe in God, but I want to do whatever I want to do. I want enough of God to keep me out of hell and enough of God to get me into heaven. But I don't want so much of God that it makes me change my lifestyle. At its root, I believe in God, but I don't fear Him. This isn't something new. This has happened all throughout history. We could label it as practical atheism. It reminded me of Proverbs fourteen twenty seven: The fear of the Lord is the fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. I want you to look at 1 Samuel 12, the last two verses, 24 and 25. Look at that for a minute. Read it quietly on your own. Just read verse 24 and 25. This is Samuel's final words, farewell speech, where you were last week. And he gives a charge there. Only fear the Lord, serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Here's the main point today. And you don't have to write this down. Just listen, we'll come back. If you don't fear God, you will lack gospel self-awareness. And if you lack that, you will plunge or tiptoe or snowball into a world of disobedience quickly. That's the point this morning. Now, to sum up the speech from last week to pick up where we were, and it's pretty similar to Moses and Joshua here. You people don't have the hearts that you need is what Samuel's reminding them. And you're going to blow it. And the Lord is going to be merciful yet again. Oh, oh yeah, and also don't commit idolatry. Okay. Now there's a lot that happens in chapter 13, 14, and 15. A ton of narrative detail. And we're going to go over some of it, but basically what I want you to see, what I want you to hear this morning is that Saul begins to taste some success. His prestige begins to build. His heart begins to puff up. He begins to con- be concerned more about outward appearances. And that begins to build more and more for him. And that begins to turn into the fear of man quickly for him that we'll see at the end of chapter 15. And his heart moves further away from the Lord, further away from what Samuel's trying to give a last cry to here, and eventually, this is going to be the fall of Saul. Now Saul has a passivity problem, and he has a prophet problem. He's not able to act, and when he does, he's always hesitant to have God. Remember, he comes back home, he tells his dad everything but the spiritual part, right? And even God's representatives that are around him, like Samuel, he doesn't like to get involved. We'll see that in our passage today. And you know what? You know you're in trouble when you're hesitant or you're unwilling to consult with God before you act. This this is what a prayer life looks like. The question has been, since chapter 10, would Saul, who becomes king that the people wanted so badly, exercise his rule under the authority of God and his word. Would he do that? Can he do that? And then the rest of the narrative, chapters 11 through 15, reveals that he won't, that he wouldn't. And as this story progresses and unpacks, things are really good in chapter 11, but by the time we get to chapter 13 and 14, where we're at this morning, things go badly. So let's read. We're going to do a lot of reading. And allow God's Word to guide us here. First Samuel 13, verse 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. Now, just real quick, I'm not a big numbers guy. But if you were to look back in chapter 11, verse 8, uh, we would see... The people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah were 30,000. Again, I'm not a numbers guy and I don't want to overly read into this, but something's going on and we're going to see the numbers are going to dwindle even more throughout our study this morning. Whether that's pride of Saul, "Ah, I don't need that many people. Or whether maybe some people are starting to be a little leery of his lead. I don't know. Look at verse 3. Jonathan defeated, underline Jonathan defeated, the garrison of the Philistines that was at Gebbia, or Geba, and the Philistines heard it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. And all of Israel heard it and said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Okay. So there's a defeat, mainly by Jonathan. Saul kind of seems to take the pride and the excitement. You know, it's the the one person that's not really a part of, like when the Falcons go to the Super Bowl, which is very rare. You know, I'm cheering, but I'm not actually playing. But I might be like, yeah, my team went to the Super Bowl. That's what's going on here with Saul, okay? So what do the Philistines do? Look at verse 5. The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. Oh man, here's their numbers. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops. Like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Okay. At this point, the enemy, Philistines, grow in numbers. Their numbers are way bigger than Saul's. So look at verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble... For the people were hard-pressed, so they can see how many are coming. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in the cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still, look where Saul's at. What a pansy. He's still a Gilgal. And all the people are following him with trembling. You know why they wanted a king? To defeat the nations. Now the king that they're following, they're following with fear. Look at verse 8 and 9. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he finished the offering, the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to him to greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? done. And Saul said, well, when I saw the people were scattering for me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I'll have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself. Sounds like a religious person. We'll get there in a little bit. And offered the burnt offering. Verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly you have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and the Lord has commanded him to be prince. Notice that word there, prince, not king, over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up to Gilgal and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up to Gilgal, to Gibeah of Benjamin and Saul numbered the people who were present with him. Look how many are with him now. 600. Man, Saul is falling apart right before our eyes here. Samuel asked him, what have you done in verse 11? Where have we heard that question before? The exact same question. Genesis 3.13, Right? God says to Eve, what is this you have done? we got the same tone here. And then also again, Genesis 2.15 with a representation here in verse 13 and verse 14. The phrase, you have not kept. You have not kept. You have not done what God has instructed you. You have not obeyed what has been commanded of you. Okay, now look up at verse 8 and 9. Let's just make a couple notes here. So Samuel doesn't arrive yet. So Saul takes this on himself to offer the sacrifice instead of waiting for Samuel, instead of being obedient to Samuel that we would have read about all the way back in chapter 10 where Samuel says, just wait till I get there. Now this might not seem like a big deal to you when you hear this. But what it is, is it is revealing that Saul is more concerned with his agenda and his timetable than following the Word of the Lord. He's not trusting the Lord here. He's doing his own thing. Now look at verse 13 and 14. Here's the question. Is God's verdict here too harsh? It's the indictment, right? I mean, we might think, man, this is harsh. But the fact is... This is why we have to read Scripture with the character of God as as the Bible tells us who God is. We have to read with that lens. God's verdict is absolutely just here. Because God's Word is sure and it's certain and it's just and it's good. For us to think that we know better than God so that we operate how we wish rather than how He wants is the definition of pride and disobedience that's what's going on here and this right here reveals a deep failure in the life of saul he, he puts on the airs of a real authentic spiritual relationship with god but he has none of its power did you hear that nc students nc adults christian school did you hear that I don't think it's by mistake somehow God miraculously every time He brings me here gives me a passage to address concerns when you're in a Christian atmosphere. I've heard it and I believe it to be true as I've seen in Scripture time and time again. Listen. It might sting at first, but think about it. Pure evil is found most prevalently around religious things. You think about some of, with Halloween, on the horizon, some of the movies that are coming out, a lot of them are based around religious characters. And the reason is because such evil is most attracted to light and likes to hide in it, is the reality of Lucifer, who's labeled as the son of the morning. It's beautiful. He's filled with light. But yet we know he's pure evil. He's a rebel against God. Guys, where light is, a lie is not far behind. A lie is not far behind. I often tell our our church people, Satan's best tactic is for you to have your booty in the pew and be far from him. That's the best place. He's got you fooled. And this is true with Saul. He, he does things that look good. He does things that look holy. He does things that look right. Think about it. He, Saul enacts worship. Saul makes a sacrifice to God. Saul prepares his people for battle. It looks worthy of the Lord. It's filled with light and life. And yet, it's a lie. Saul did nothing to bring honor and glory to the Creator. He did it all for himself. And that increases all the more in these chapters. The breast Christian Saul has the appearance of godliness, but denies the Lord's power. And that sounds a lot like 2 Timothy 3.15. He attempts to manipulate the things of God to his own ends. Now the failure of Saul is to be truly devoted to the Lord, which is what was asked from him from day one. When we have the appearance of faith without authentic faith, then we can anticipate absolute judgment. You've heard probably this illustration before, but it's really helped me in light of a Christmas tree. But you can always tell whether a tree is rooted in the ground by seeing if it grows and bears fruit, right? But, but again, think about the Christmas tree. In a little while, a couple months, people are going to go and cut down a Christmas tree. And then after it's been in the house for like, I don't know, a week, even with people watering it, somehow it begins to deteriorate, right? The needles fall off. It doesn't bear cones. So it is with Saul here. Saul did not bear fruits of victory and true righteousness because he wasn't planted in the Lord. Now what happens at the end of chapter 13 is just some detail again from the narrator, the author. Basically, the people can't make their own swords. The Philistines are a part of that. So they go down and they have to have the blacksmith there Make their spears and swords for them. I, again, just revealing Saul's not trusting the Lord here. Right? He, he's basing a lot of things he does off of worldly power and pursuit for himself. Now, chapter 14, Jonathan, who we heard a little bit about at the beginning of chapter 13, shows up. A, a, and this this chapter highlights Saul's son. That's who Jonathan is. He's Saul's son. And it highlights way more about Jonathan than it exalts the greatness of King Saul here. And later, you guys are going to see in the coming weeks that this guy named Jonathan is is extremely devoted to David. He's extremely devoted to God's plan with David. All in all, Jonathan is a good man who loves God and loves his fellow Israelites. Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts. Again, Saul hiding. This is the guy that hid himself in the baggage several chapters ago. He hides himself in Gilgal while the other people are fighting. He's hiding again in Gibeah, in the caves. Look at verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Let me just point this out really quick, side note. Jonathan's thinking religious here. His mind is shaped by the Scriptures. He's not talking about, oh, let's go over to the army of the Philistines over here. He's calling them uncircumcised. He's using religious talk here, which is shaped by Scriptures. He says it may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. He's acknowledging God is powerful enough with our numbers here that He can do something. We can't. Verse 7, And His armor bearer said to Him, Do all this in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. I love this. If they say yes to us, Wait until you come. Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. So they're saying how they react is going to determine if the Lord is going to grant them victory here. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines and the Philistines said, look. Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. (sighs) They said, the other one. All right, here we go. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. Man, this is one of those things where you just read Scripture and you're like, this is awesome. I I don't know what happens here. We don't get that kind of detail. I'm thinking of like Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, the guy that whistles and his arrow goes through everybody and everybody just falls and dies. That's what's happening here. Like God does something. How does two guys take on this many people? I don't know. I was going to do that whistle, but I don't know if I can do that either. Look at verse 14. And at that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were half a furrow's length in an acre of land, and there was panic in the camp. Two guys caused panic here. The garrison and even the raiders trembled in the earthquake and became a very great panic. Now, the following verses talk about Saul's reaction to this. He hears about it. And he says, bring the ark of God. You learned about this several weeks ago. It's like his rabbit's foot, right? oh bring the ark of god this is the moment again not trusting in the lord hopefully you're hearing that so i love this look at verse 23 so the lord saved Israel that day not Saul not even Jonathan Jonathan leaned on the lord But the acknowledgement here that the author gives that the Lord saved Israel that day attributes to God. Now, what happens in the rest of the chapter is really kind of weird. Saul thinks he's this big shot, makes this, hey, we're not going to eat kind of thing, like fast. It's like you volleyball girls, you know, if you play multiple games in a day, it's like, hey, don't eat. Like, You got to eat. You need some energy, right? Lord provides, it seems like He provides uh, honey, was this dropping that was on the ground as it explains. And Saul basically says, Nobody will eat, and the person who does will die. But Jonathan doesn't hear this. He doesn't hear the rule that his dad gives. And so Jonathan's walking along and he eats. He tastes a little bit of the honey, and it says, in verse 29, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little bit of the honey. He didn't even know. And then later we'll see the pe- people are going to splurge. Saul finds out that his son did that. Look at verse 35. He builds an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. There's, again, a lot going on. We just don't have time. Look all the way down at verse 45, the very end of it. And what the people say is, Jonathan can't die. This isn't right. This word's not used very much in Scripture, but look at the word. So the people ransomed Jonathan. So he doesn't die. And Saul went up, pursues the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Now look at verses 47-52 through 52 of chapter 14. This, this summarizes Saul's kingship here. Talks about his family, his battles that he won. Look at verse 52. Such an interesting last verse yet again. Why, why does the narrator tell us that Saul attaches men to himself? Because Saul is worried about Saul. He is enlisting people into his own army. He's worried about building his name, his safety, his security, his looks, rather than God's army. Saul's trying to build a name for himself, but he is restraining the people of embracing God's name. And we have seen this. Hopefully you're seeing some repetition here that Saul uses the things of God when it is expedient for him. He has no real desire for people to follow the Lord. That's not his desire. It also tells me again that Saul's kind of this pansy. you got to remember Saul is the guy that couldn't find a donkey, right? And he's got to ask the guy next to him where it's at and kind of do all the work. And the guy next to him is the one that reminds him about, oh, that one guy, Samuel. Okay. Saul just doesn't think for himself. He doesn't. He's a weak man. All right, let's look at chapter 15. This is where it's at. Oh my goodness. This is the chapter of Saul's long and painful demise. And what we have in this chapter is hypocrisy and deceit and complete failure to hear the instructions that Samuel gives to him here. in verse 1. And Saul is going to give us a little disobedient crash course here. Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Now, Samuel's going to tell him, Amalek, he's been a pain all the way since Exodus 17. This guy's been around. This is, I I was tempted, like, it's that one school, right, that you always compete against that you don't really like. But then I thought, well, there's, this is a recording, so I'll be really careful. It's that one sibling that's annoying and won't leave you alone. And enough is enough. Okay? So Samuel gives him the instruction that you need to go take out the Amalek, Amalek and the false gods that they have. Look at verse 10. And the word of the Lord came to Samuel. So Samuel finds out that Saul doesn't carry out everything. He goes, he defeats, he wins, but he wasn't supposed to take anything. And he takes a lot of things. The cattle, the spoil. And Agog, the king for the Amalekites, he takes as well. And he's the one guy he doesn't kill. In verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel I regret God informing Samuel here. I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from the following me and has not performed my commandments. We don't have time to go into the the theological end here, but God is a God that doesn't regret. But he's trying to sympathize here. This is what I told you. You don't want a king. When Samuel hears this, into verse 11, he was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. So Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Huh, who sets up a statue of themselves? This guy does. He turns and he passed on, and he went down to Gilgal, and Samuel said to Saul, and Saul said to him, Oh, blessed be to you, Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said to him, what then, this is like my favorite line in this whole book. What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Revealing, Saul, you didn't obey. It's, it's, it's a religious person trying to get out in front. Look what I've done. It's like partial obedience. Hey, is 98% of obedience disobedience? Yes, yes. Yes. Look at verse 15. Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. He stops him in mid-sentence. Just stop. I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Acknowledging that God has is the one who made him king, not Saul being great, but God. The Lord anointed you king over Israel, verse 18, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners of the Amalekites and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, verse 19? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil inside of the Lord? What does Saul say? He says to Samuel, I I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord has sent me. I brought Agag, the king of the Amal- Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Look at verse 21. But the people, very similar language to Genesis here, right? God asked Adam, what have you done? Oh, this woman you gave me. Blame shifter, day one, right here. But the people took of the spoil. I didn't. The sheep and the oxen and the best things devoted to destruction, the sacrifice to the Lord your God. So he not only blames the people, but then he tries to correct it too with saying, well, we're just taking the best so we can sacrifice it to the Lord. 22 and 23, the centerpiece of this chapter. Samuel says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is iniquity and an idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. we got to read this just for context. There you go, Z. This is context, context, context. Look at verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people. I feared the people. Not the Lord. I feared the people. Now, therefore, he's pleading with Samuel here, pardon my sin, return with me. I need you. Just like he attached himself to people he needs at the end of 14, he finally gets to the point where he's like, yeah, I need you, Samuel. Samuel. Verse 26, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. Reminds him yet again, you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. 27, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. That's going to point to David, which you'll get in the coming weeks. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then Samuel is like, I have sinned, yet I honor me now before the elders. He again cares what it looks like before the people. Not before the Lord, but for the people. Make it look okay in front of all everybody else here that might know about this. But look, 31, Samuel turns back after Saul. And Saul bows before the Lord. Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Samuel carries out what Saul can't do. And it's pretty graphic. Look at verse 33, just read it. He doesn't just kill Agag, he cuts him up into pieces. Here's what I want to do last five minutes. Here's your note taking. Let's talk about disobedience here. And disobedience often flows or begins or starts to take root or grow out of a lack of the fear for the Lord. Number one. i got to go somewhat quick, so if you miss it, find me afterwards. Number one, disobedience is anything less than full and immediate disobed- it, uh, Sorry, full and immediate obedience. So disobedience is anything less than full And immediate obedience. Now we might ask ourselves, are there areas in our lives in which we're not obeying God fully here? And those of us who are religious were often tempted to cover up over rebellion with rituals to substitute ceremony for surrender. We disobey in one area, and what we try to do is we try to make it up to God with offering something in some other area. Nebraska Christian, religion tries to pay off God. But religious people labor under this delusion that they have the right to retain control of their lives. Religion wants to obey God, but only on its own terms. Terms that are partial, or delayed, or have conditional obedience. And that's all just a a list of various forms of disobedience there. Number two, disobedience grows out of a greedy desire. Disobedience grows out of a greedy desire. The heart of Saul's disobedience is that he wants to be a famous king with world-class power. That is why he spares Agag. That's why he keeps the spoils. That's why he builds a monument, statue of himself. And why, when Samuel confronts him, his only concern is not repenting before the Lord, but that it looks right before the people. Everyone in this room has a king in here something that you crave to make you feel happy and to make you feel secure sin always grows out of some deep soul dissatisfaction something we feel like we have to have in order to have a happy and secure life i hate i i do i hate i hate the way What's being marketed to you by the world is find yourself, care for yourself, look for you. No, slay yourself. And for some of you are like slay yourself. Well, that's strong. No, deny yourself. It's just scriptural. Sorry. Whatever is real, whatever it is, whatever is the the king in your heart, the real problem. Just like Saul's is that our soul is not content with the possession of God. It's not. Our idolatrous, greedy desire for other things fuels our disobedience. Number three, disobedience further estranges us from God, which leads to increasing irrational behavior. I'm going to guess a lot of you adults have probably seen this in some people's lives. This moment is a defining one in Saul's life. From this point on, he's going to plummet into this epic tailspin. Instead of repenting, which he had several opportunities here, his heart grows harder and harder and harder. The Christian, selfish desire grows out of a feeling of separation from God. And the longer that we persist in maintaining that separation, the more erratic and destructive our behavior will become. Number four, don't miss this. Disobedience can only be overcome by the gospel. samuel reminds saul that god made him king when he had previously been a nobody looking for some donkeys this is a beautiful old testament picture of the gospel saul should have responded in gratitude because of god's amazing grace he should have and god has said something similar to us when you were a sinner I came to earth and hung on a cross for you. The God of the universe sacrificed himself for us and loves us immeasurably. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, who promises goodness and mercy to us all the days of our lives. And when you understand that, it will, listen, it will liberate you from the drive to need to be great in your life. The great news of the Gospel is that Christ fulfilled obedience perfectly for us. But then, in return, was given rejection and punishment at the end of His life. He died the death you deserved. He paid the price. Past, present, future. And that line there, look at verse 22 of 15. That line, to obey is better than sacrifice. The author of Hebrews applies that to Jesus, and I love it. It's Hebrews 10, 5 through 10. It's so cool. Why? Because Jesus obeyed fully and perfectly, and then, on top of that, sacrificed himself. He did both. Sweet. His obedience earns our acceptance before God. The one person in all the universe, whose opinion matters more than anybody else's is, is God's. And his obedience earns our acceptance before him if you place your faith in that faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone. Number five, last one disobedience exposes and creates a choice self-deception, or repentance. So Saul succumbs to the temptation of following the wrong narrative. He constructs a narrative that's trying to excuse his sin here. He blames other for the disobedience. He attempts to make up for mistakes with sacrifices. Remember, he says, I forced myself to do this. He generally asserts himself that, he, I'm a pretty good individual. Remember, he comes out and he meets Samuel. Ah, oh, look what I've done for the Lord. When confronted with our sin, we all find ourselves in a situation similar to Saul's. Like Saul, we may rationalize our disobedience and we might follow a non-biblical narrative. We can try to blame others for our disobedience. Ah, I had, I had a bad class. Like there was no good friends in there that I could have. It's on them. No, no, that's on you. We try to make up for our mistakes by doing extra. Or maybe we just kind of point out, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. But that is a path without an exit. Once we begin to rationalize, we begin to spin this web of our own demise, deceiving ourselves until, like Samuel's robe, our lives are torn in two. Listen, God does not want our rationalizations he wants our repentance he does not want our sacrifices he wants our submission now the choice is passed for saul but not for us the choice between self-deception and repentance between death and life stands before each and every single one of you today Now, shoot, let me leave you with three questions. and E group leaders, I went a little bit off from where I was planning to go when we met yesterday. Here's three questions you can talk about in the small time that you have, but I would encourage you to talk even outside of it or think on it on your own. Number one, what ways do you cover up disobedience? In what ways do you try to cover up your disobedience like Saul? Number two, in chapter 15, verse 22 and 23, what what does God really want from Saul? And from that, you should be able to answer, what does God really want from you? And number three, what do you need to put away or give up as you say yes to Jesus? I feel like I need to just say this and kind of point it out so that you can see scripture as a whole with where you're at in 1 Samuel here. So this is where we're going to end. You can you don't have to take notes here. Just want you to see this and know this. Saul's life is pretty tragic and it mirrors in many ways Eli. Do you remember Eli? Remember him? Week one, two, three. he was like the big fat guy that fells off his seat and breaks his neck and dies. And some of you are like, huh, that's not true. Yeah, it is. Chapter 4, verse 18. It's weird. But here's what I want you to point out. Scripture always supports Scripture. Eli was passive. So was Saul. Eli was lackadaisical with the things of God. Saul is manipulative with the things of God. Eli and Saul treated God's holy sacrifices with some contempt. And both Eli and Saul get their leadership stripped from them. Eli... And Saul were told that the true priest, Samuel, and the true king, David, respectively, would replace them. And we know that scripture points to the ultimate prophet, priest, king, Jesus. Because everybody falls short. We cannot do what God has done. We cannot use religious, spiritual things like the many people we see in Scripture. Fear God, not man. Obey the voice of the Lord, not man. Let's pray. God, you are gracious, you are good. You are merciful. You are the author of salvation. You are the creator of the universe. You are an infinite God. We are finite creatures. God, would you break our hearts in the areas that we try to put ourselves in the repetitive state that we see in Scriptures. What is this you have done? You have not kept. You have not kept. Because we lack a fear of you. Even from our passage this morning, we see it so clear. Those who do not fear you. There's absolute rightful judgment. God, I pray that you would do a work that only you can do in the hearts here, that we would not be deceived because we go to a Christian school, because we do Christian things that our heart may be far from you. God, would you reveal that to us even in the coming days and weeks? Would you, by your grace, give us sleepless nights until we surrender to you? God, it is not about sacrifice. But his surrender and submission. I pray that for each, In Jesus' name, Amen.